Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 4th, we are studying 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. The word that St. Paul and his companions preached in Thessalonica. What was it? Or better yet, whose was it? The text will give us a clear answer. The Thessalonians had not placed their faith in the word of men. They had placed their faith in the word of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me back. It's fun times. Yes, it is. Pastor Hull, we are in 1 Thessalonians. Give us some context here of this epistle as we prepare to dig into these verses here at the end of chapter 2. Well, you look at this epistle, and it's written, you know, around 50, 51 A.D., so this isn't um, one of the later works of Paul. This is one of his his um, earlier works, you know. And it's interesting when you see Paul writing to these churches, he still kind of has that hint of maybe animosity <laughs> toward the Jews that are preventing him from getting this message to the Gentiles. And you, it doesn't deter him though. It it shows him that. No, no matter what the world does, no matter who tries to stop the work of the gospel, it continues on. And you see Paul giving this beautiful example to these these Christians in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is that what it's called? Thessalonica. That's correct. Is that what it is. And there we go. Thank you. I I always failed pronunciation at <laughs> seminary. Did you all have a class of that, like St. Louis pronu- pronouncing things? <laughs> That's so you don't yeah, sound stupid. At St. Louis, yeah, they just told us to to just say it with confidence, and then oh. who's going to know if you're wrong, right? Man, I mean, that's smart. Have you ever I been to Thessalonica? To Which no, is a no, real I city, haven't been. Have you? I have not. I have not. Oh man, but I've read the letters. We should go together sometime. We should go together. That'd be All fun. Right. We could record a, a special episode of Sharper Iron live from Thessalonica. We, See if the Lutheran Church Extension Fund would fund us to do that trip. That could be a good time, I tell you. <laughs> I'll see what we can do. It could be good. <laughs> but as I was saying before I went off my, my first rabbit hole there, he, he's complimenting them. You're imitating how the church first was, how you see this, this growth of the gospel, this imitation of Christ, this living and trusting Christ. And you, you see him, as he does in most of his epistles, speaking like that concern not just concerned, but caring father, saying, I'm glad you're doing this, but I want to keep nurturing it so you continue in it. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the, the date of the letter, not, not so much about when it was, but you, as you mentioned, it's one of Paul's earliest, earliest works, perhaps the very first one that he, he writes. And, and, you know, how do we—obviously, we don't know exactly when every one of Paul's letters was, was written. We can get a general timeline of them— but how the fact that this is one of the first, if not the first, how does that affect the way we interpret the other letters and this letter? I mean, should we should we look at First Thessalonians and then see how he traces themes through the others? How how does that does that affect the way we interpret, or is that just sort of does that not really matter? What do you think, Pastor Hall? Well, I believe it does matter because you see what Paul died in what sixty eight, sixty nine, something AD? like that. Which one was it? I can't. I mean, he and Peter die around the same time, 68, 69 AD. So this is a good, you know, 18, almost 20 years before he was to, you know, be beheaded in Rome. And you see in his writing here that as he continues writing, as he continues writing letters, you see him maturing in a good way. Um, getting deeper into the doctrines, kind of the same, uh, like, you know, he, he makes the point, you know, you start with the spiritual milk, and then you start eating solid foods. When he's speaking to the, the Christians here in Thessalonica, he's not, um, I, I would say he's a lot more patient with them. 
And as he continues on in the ministry, it's not that he grows more impatient, but it's kind of like this, well, what's going on here? Um, you, you should know these things <laughs> by now. Um, and I don't know, you, you can see a lot of this in, in even pastoral work today. As you begin catechizing people, you know, it, but you, you look at the person who's been going to church, been going to the studies, been in catechesis, if they kind of make the wrong statement or, or fall away, it, it digs at you a little more. And you see this with Paul, some of the themes that he brings up in here, um, like this, not just imitating life in Christ, but like when you get to chapter five, um, which, uh, you know, was our reading. When was it? It was the last Sunday in the church year for the historic lectionary or one year lectionary. That first Thessalonians five, one to 11. How he ends it is Pastor Hall. They they don't do that one there. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know we, we thought it, but I'm glad you clarified it. I tell you, (laughs) sorry. First Thessalonians five, the the epistle reading for the final Sunday of the church year in the, the historic lectionary. What, what about it, Pastor Hall? Well, when you look at it, how, how Paul ends that in verse 11, he, he talks about who Christ is for you. You are destined in Christ. And then he ends with, encourage one another as you are doing. So you see that theme through Paul in all of his epistles is it's all about Christ for you. Just live in encouraging one another in that. And it's that theme, that central theme of like justification by faith in Christ alone, encouraging one another in that that then you get to one of his later epistles, like Romans, and he's saying, okay, now here's that depth of what it means to be justified in Christ and how you encourage one another in it. So at least I see that. Maybe I'm wrong. I think that's a helpful response, Pastor Hall. It's just something that I don't often think about is the timeline of the epistles of Paul and how that might affect the way that we interpret them. So I appreciate your response there. So with that, let's go ahead and and read the text that we've got before us and begin to dig into some of these themes that Paul is laying out here in this letter that he will then continue to preach on in his other letters. Again, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. There's the text that we have before us today, Pastor Hall, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. Those very first words of verse 13 stand out. We also thank God constantly. He's already given thanks to God earlier in the epistle. At the very beginning, we've, we've got this thanksgiving. So, Structurally, Pastor Hall, are, are we still a part of that that first major move that Paul makes in his epistles, that thanksgiving? And and how does this relate to what he's already given thanks for earlier? Well, earlier he's giving thanks for it, their faith and examples and things like this. And you see him here giving thanks for how they hold to the Word of God. Um, I, I love... How Paul, and and this is an interesting thing, and maybe we don't do this often enough today, giving thanks that a church does hold to the Word of God, and understanding that when we do that, we're keeping with the second commandment, that when God works in the hearts of those that he gathers to confess that this Word declared is God's Word to us, we, we pastors need to take that time and say, it is my duty then to thank God for this, that he's the one doing it. It's him at work. (laughs) 
Um, and not to try to give some false humility, but to remove myself from the equation that Paul gives thanks. And he's saying this is all God's work, no matter how feeble and pathetic I am. God is the one who is at work here. And that's why you have this beautiful thanksgiving. Mm. Paul makes it very clear that God is at work here because he tells the Thessalonians what they received. And he's, he's very upfront that this was not the word of men, but it was actually the word of God. What gives Paul the confidence to know that he's preaching God's word? Well, with Paul, you see it like through the book of Acts all the time, where he keeps going back to his call. It's hey, Jesus appeared. Remember, I, mean, I can't remember how many times he recalls it in the book of Acts. It's at least four where he tells the same story over and over again to different people. You know, I was on this road. Jesus appeared to me and this happened. Um, he recalls it in the book, uh, in the letter to the Galatians as well. And that this this word is not man's opinion. This is Jesus the Christ handing over this word. That this is not the perspectives or thoughts or feelings or opinions of Peter, James, and John. Right? Remember, Paul even said, when I first was converted, I didn't go to Jerusalem to meet with the so-called pillars. I went this way. So he, he's, he's saying this is all God and him speaking. This isn't the opinions of man. This is the word of God. And that gives him that confidence. Um, at least as we read the book of Acts, he always goes back to that. And so why, why is that so important that the Thessalonians would know that this isn't the word of men, but it is the word of God that they've been hearing and believing? Because that's the one thing that matters, right? I mean, if, if I forgive you and you and I are good, that's nice, but you and I are only going to live. Well, you'll probably live longer than me. You're in much better shape than I am, and you probably take care of yourself a lot better than I do myself. So you'll live to a nice old age. I'll probably die in my 60s. Um, but let's say, you know, we, we both live on this earth for a good amount of time, and we have reconciliation with each other. That's nice. That's good. But there's this thing called eternity. <laughs> and it matters how God views you, how he sees you, how you stand before him. Do you stand before him as the sheep or the goat? Do you stand before him justified by Christ, meaning Christ has assumed all of your sins, and you would now stand forgiven? Or do you stand there with your sins, trying to make justifications for each and every one of them yourself? So it matters how God sees you. So when Paul says this is God's word of forgiveness, God's word of life, that's what matters to us. That's the only thing that matters to us is how does God view me? How does God see me? And when we hear that declaration of absolution spoken by the pastor as from God, Christ himself, we know that we stand forgiven before God. Because it is not man's thought, man's word, but God's eternal word that never fades away. What is it in, um, oh, where is it? Where, where, one of the Psalms where it says, you know, the word of God, it, well, it says it all over the place, the word of God endures forever. And it's either that word of condemnation or that word of salvation. And it matters how you receive it, how, how, you you see this as, okay, this is God speaking to me and rescuing me from sin, death, and the power of the devil. Mm. Pastor Hull, you, you've been bringing out the absolution as the word of God that, that applies today. So my, my question here then, so Paul says this, and, and as you pointed out, he's one of the apostles, Christ actually appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He recounts that throughout the book of Acts and in the book, book of Galatians as well as a, a source of his confidence that he is, in fact, preaching the gospel. But Paul's not here in the flesh anymore like he was for the church in Thessalonica. How mm -hmm. does this same confidence that the church has the word of God rather than the word of men, how do we have that same confidence today? Huh. That's the fun part, right? Most churches don't. <laughs> uh, they deny the inerrancy and inspiration of, of the Holy Scriptures. Um, they pick and choose what parts of the Bible they will follow and which ones they won't. 
Um, and to ever say that I have 100% confidence, I have to pray every day that God give me faith to hold that this is his word, to receive it. And that faith is only given by him, given by his word, right? As St. As, as Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. We know that this is the word of God um, because the, the the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus that this is this is concrete. That these words are not words that Peter thought about, right? Because he says, I actually saw it. I'm an eyewitness. When Luke opens up with his gospel, uh, he says uh, to, um, what is his name? Theophilus, right? Isn't that his name? That's correct. Luke writes, yeah, the, you know, I, I, I met with the eyewitnesses of this. They saw this happen. They were there. This word of God is not the word of man. This is the word of, of, of Jesus himself. Um, and this is not just the New Testament we're talking about here, like a bunch of Marcionites, right, Marcion, that, that heretic that denied basically the entirety of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament even because it felt too Jewish. That's his heresy in a nutshell. I know that's not the full breadth of the heresy. Um, but we hold that the Word of God is, is the Old Testament as well. This is not like the first five books of the Bible. Yes, they are written by Moses. They're inspired by God. This is, this is the Word of God that he speaks through Moses. Moses records it. Um, that could be a whole series in and of itself, right? The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. I think um, so. I think so. Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, and, and that, is, that is a big topic. And that was that's part of what I, I do want to talk about is that we have this confidence that the scriptures are the word of God, not the word of men, because of because of who Jesus is, because of what he's yeah. done, his death and his resurrection. You've got his promise in John 14 and 15, where he's mm-hmm. talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit to his apostles mm-hmm. and how the Spirit yeah. will help them to remember everything that he said. And, and we should take yeah, that 15, as a, a man, promise, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so we've got Christ's own word, the one who died and rose, that what his apostles wrote down is his word given by the Holy Spirit. We've got Christ's own word that the Old Testament is all about him. Uh, Luke 24, after Jesus rises from the dead, he opens his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures so that they would know that it's all about his death and resurrection that is to be preached for repentance and forgiveness. There's your, your sermon summary for, for next week and every week after Pastor Hall from mm-hmm. Jesus himself, yeah, right? Exactly. right? So so we know exactly. from Jesus that that the scriptures are, in fact, the word of God. They are not the word of men. I like the way you put it. It was recorded by Moses, but it is it is God's own word, same as, as here, 1 Thessalonians, recorded by Paul. You see his hand on it in certain stylistic ways that he writes, but it is, in fact, God's own word. But I also want to then bring that into the present tense as well. What about the words that my pastor speaks to me? And mm-hmm. you, you've brought out absolution as one of those, that we should have confidence that that's the word of God and not the word of the pastor. Why Why should we have that confidence? And also, Pastor Hall, what about the sermon that he preaches or the Bible study that he teaches? Mm-hmm. Where Where do I have that confidence that my pastor is not speaking the word of God but the word of men, or and or maybe where should I understand he's speaking the word of men rather than the word of God? What what do you think about that more day to day application? Well, it comes down to what is your pastor speaking to you? Like if I stand in the pulpit and say, if you vote for Donald Trump, God will bless you. That that's not the word of God. That's my thought on something. Um, and you can say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, that's you. You applying your own worldview, your own maybe political stance or social understanding to the Word of God. You can't do that. And you're right. Now if I say, repent because you support abortion. That's not a political statement. Abortion, as we confess it, is is the killing of 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 a baby. It's the ending of a life. And that's me preaching the fifth commandment. That's me as the pastor speaking the law, because not only is absolution that confidence we can have, I am forgiven, but the law as well that you need to be forgiven is the reality that is spoken. Now, if I say, okay, you need to repent because you voted for not that type of thing, 
but this understanding of when you excuse and make justifications for sin yourself, you remove Jesus as the justifier of you, the sinner, because he is the one who has claimed that sin. And what did he suffer for that sin? Death. He suffered the full wrath of the Father for that sin. And that sin is a reality. So when your pastor speaks in Bible study, in the sermon, he preaches law and gospel, teaches law and gospel. He teaches the Word of God. It, it, the validity of it isn't based on what you feel about it. The validity of it is, is this what the Word of God says or is it not? Is my pastor, when he, let's say, does the abortion example, is he actually handing over what the Fifth Commandment says, as we understand it, to help and support your neighbor in every physical need, not to hurt and harm them in their body? Is he doing that? And that takes the parishioner, the hearer, and that's maybe a better way to speak of this, like Luther does in the Table of Duties, preachers and hearers. Is the hearer actually paying attention to what they're hearing? Are they keeping that third commandment and gladly hearing and learning it so that if their pastor steps out of line, they can say, well, wait a minute, and they can, rem- they can bring him back in a spirit of gentleness, like Paul says to do in Galatians 6, verse 1, if that makes sense. It does, and I, I like the way you brought in the catechism there as the matter of the hearer keeping the third commandment. I think that, that relates nicely, the second commandment to the third commandment, especially as the second commandment applies to preachers. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord mm-hmm. your God. Don't tell lies in God's name. That applies very much to the one who would stand up and say, this is the word of the Lord. So the second commandment is, is coming to him and saying, make sure you preach the word of God. And then the third commandment comes to the hearer and says, make sure you mm-hmm. hear the word of God. And it, it the two the two go together. The, the hearer has a responsibility and the preacher has a responsibility. Dig into that a little bit more for us, Pastor Hall. Well, no, it's beautiful. It's like um, Luther once said, oh, I'm trying to remember where it was now. It'll, come, it'll probably come to me when we're done talking, uh, that the pastor never has to repent when he is stepping down from the pulpit, right? Because in his, you know, like if you go to Wittenberg, you see this raised pulpit, so you have to walk down it. He wouldn't have to say a prayer of repentance or pray the Lord's Prayer on the way down, because if he has walked in his vocation, he has not sinned by preaching. Um, the man who preaches the Word of God has kept the second commandment and has proclaimed the truth, both the truth that you in and of yourself are a sinner who is not worthy of God's love. But in Christ, you don't get what you deserve. You are under his mercy. So you receive his love because Christ is taking care of your sin. You are acquitted, like Paul writes in Colossians. You are acquitted of this sin. It is removed from you. Christ is the Lamb of God who bears your sin. You are forgiven. So that is the pastor's vocation, to give glory to God. Like when anyone on their way out of church, you know you'll get this. I'm sure you get this more than I do because— uh, I'm, I'm more of a flamboyant preacher, so it's more more of the arm movement, uh, you know. Uh, less Are you content. moving your arms right now, Pastor Hall? <laughs> I, I actually am. That's the fun part. We should record these live on, on like, videos or something so people can get the full imagery. Um, but, you know, people will walk out and they'll say, good sermon, or, you know, that sermon, I really needed to hear that today. Um, every time I get that, I learned this from uh, an associate pastor on my vicar. His name David McMahon. He would always say, well, praise the Lord, right? That's the point. Any sermon that's good, it's not to my praise. It's not so I can walk around going, well, I'm the preacher of preachers. No, it's, it's praise the Lord. It's all to his glory because it's for you. And that is your vocation then to hear this because it's for your good. God doesn't give this command because he hates you. He gives this command because he loves you. He wants you to know that what's being done on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock and 1045 is for you. Everything else can go away. This is the one thing that matters. It was like the Facebook post you just did. I saw today about Christmas, right? You know, you can take all these other things out, and it's still Christmas. But if you take Christ out of it, it is not Christmas. That, this is the one thing that matters for you. No matter how terrible the rest of your life is, you have no money, you have no health, you have no friends. 
Guess what? You have a Lord and King who loves you, who forgives you, and has a room waiting for you in heaven. And that's how we walk in keeping these two commandments with each other, the pastor preaching the truth and the hearer gladly hearing and learning it and declaring, yes, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Uh, thanks be to God. And it is that word of God. That is what is at work. The word of men will not work for your salvation, but the word of God will. And that word of God, that's what's been at work for the Thessalonians. That's what Paul is telling them here in these few verses from chapter two. We're going to take a short break here on Sharper Iron, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Wednesday, December 4th, we are looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16 with Pastor Chris Hull of Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, on the first side of the break, we were looking at especially verse 13, where Paul <laughs> thanks God for God's word that has done the work there in the Thessalonian church. It is not the word of men. It is the word of God that they have received and is at work. And he continues then in verse 14, again, recalling themes that he's brought up before. He says that these brothers of his, they have become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And before we get too much into the matter of, of imitators and how Paul now takes that image and changes it a little bit in terms of what's being imitated. Just a question on why imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea? Why Why does he specify that here, do you think? Well, it's so early, right? We mentioned earlier this is 51 AD. You're not too far in the past is is the martyrdom of St. Saint, of Saint Stephen, um, Paul's conversion. You know, these aren't things that are like 20-something years ago, you know, or 30 years ago. These are things that are still kind of fresh in people's mind. And you look at the beginning of the church in Judea, and you see a deep persecution of it. I think, you know, Stephen's martyrdom being one of the high, high points of that persecution, or low points, however you want to word it. But you see now the, the saints in Thessalonica being imitators or mimicking these Christians, they're mimicking them, that this is what the, the baptismal life looks like. That's a question we don't ask often enough. What does the baptismal life look like? And everyone says, well, it's different for all people. Well, no, it's, it's, in Scripture, it's pretty plain what it looks like, right? Jesus says it in, in, at the end of the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not persecuted because you happen to be a jerk, because just because no one likes you doesn't mean you're being persecuted. It just means you're, you're not a nice person. But when you're persecuted because you're holding to the truth, persecuted because you seek peace rather than division, persecuted because you seek absolution rather than condemnation, persecuted because you are always desiring others to have the same joy you have in Christ, then that, that's the, the beautiful thing. And the Christians in Thessalonica came after the ones in Judea. So it's kind of keeping with, ah, what's that article in the Augsburg on saints? Is it 21? Article 21, the cult of the saints? 24. 21, right? I think so. Pastor Hall, you're going to catch and, me off guard, and I need to read my book. I'm sorry, I think it's now. 21. I, I'm, I'm apt to mind. Yeah, I think it's 21. And you see this beautiful imitation, right? There's those three reasons we, we meditate on the saints, is to see the grace that God gives them, to see them examples of mercy or, or examples of faith. But then that third is to imitate them in their vocation. And the saints aren't just people that lived 2,000 years ago. The saints can be 
your parents. The saints can be your pastor that came before you at your congregation. The saints are those that just came before you, who die in Christ, who live in Christ. And that's the beautiful part here. He's saying, hey, just like they were doing it, you're doing it now too, so rejoice. You're in the same, you're in the great fellowship of the believers. That That is the Augsburg Confession, Article 21. Pastor Hall, you were correct. And if, if you want to find out hey, more hey. about that, I would suggest listening in the archives to the program Concord Matters here on KFU, hosted by Pastor Sean Smith. They've got some great episodes on that from both the Augsburg Confession and its apology concerning the, the saints as well. So, Pastor Hall, we're talking here about that imitation of the saints. And, and earlier, Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 6, that the Thessalonians had become imitators of us and of the mm -hmm. Lord. Here they are imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. And as you said, given the history, that's a good example to point to because that's where a majority of the churches are. That's where the, the first churches are, too, in terms of chronology. You think back to the book of Acts, chapter 1, where Jesus describes to his apostles how the gospel will go forth from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and then out to the ends of the earth. So he's he's taking them back to where it all started there by, by describing them. But this matter of imitating suffering mm -hmm. seems like a really odd thing to do. When I think of the, the things that I, I want my children to imitate of me, I suppose that mm -hmm. I do want them to suffer well, but suffering probably isn't the first thing on the list. And and I also think, and I'm not sure if it was, it was Luther who said this, or if it was someone else that I'm recalling, but you don't you don't get to choose what your cross is. A cross is mm -hmm. given to you, and so how is it that you can imitate suffering? The suffering is given to you, like you say, you don't get to choose the cross you bear. And when we imitate suffering, it's more of him saying, you, you're not stopping it. You're not denying it. You know, when, when the suffering comes, you're not fighting it. And sorry, one of my kids just did something to another one, so I had to give him a glare real quick. But um, <laughs> always fun. It, it, it's like martyrdom. You don't sprint away from it, nor do you run to it. But when it's brought on you, you, you suffer it joyfully. Now, we don't really get martyrdom here in the, our Western church in America. And that's actually not really true in recent history, right? Remember, Lutheran ministers during World War I were actually hanged outside of their churches. You know, the German-speaking ones. Have you ever read that in, like, the Lutheran historical stuff? The, I haven't seen that, the, Noah. Yeah. My associate pastor gave it to me. German-speaking Lutheran pastors were, like, hung, like, killed by lynch mobs. Because wow. they were it's like, oh, you, you're German. You're a terrible person. So that's not even—that's only 100 years ago. Mm. The Missouri Synod was persecuted, you know? Mm. And, and granted, it was for being German, but it was also—they weren't running away from it. They, it's pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Um, but at least in our day and age here— to be persecuted, we, we haven't really dealt with it too much. It's there. We don't run away from it. But when it's given to us, we, we still say thanks be to God. <laughs> to God be the glory. And we mimic those saints who went before us and how they received it. Um, right? We just celebrated the Feast of St. Andrew on Saturday. And how he received his death, right? He, you know, they, they offered him release. And he says, no, for my king, you know, my king's coming for me. And that's how we, we imitate St. Andrew and his martyrdom. When hardships come on us, persecutions, burdens, the many crosses we bear, we suffer it joyfully together. Joyfully, not like putting a smile on our face and acting like a moron, but joyfully meaning this, this happy contentment in the gifts that Christ freely gives us. So you're right, we don't, we, do, we don't go looking for a particular suffering, like that person's suffering, but instead it's how are they acting in their suffering? So when I suffer, I suffer the same way, in whatever way it comes to me. One of the questions we ask our confirmands, do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church, and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? And, and the answer given 
I do by the grace of God. That same mm-hmm. imitation of suffering is something that we still vow to to do in our confirmation today. And I like the way that you describe it, that it is about how we receive that suffering with joy and not, not a giggly sort of joy, but a confidence, a comfort that is there because we know we have Christ. And because we have Christ, this is his word that has worked in us. And that word will not let us down. And so we, we can imitate that suffering. And, and the other thing, I, I think it's, it's helpful to see the matter of imitating suffering because it, it does make it a matter of a gift. It's not so, so much about how hard am I trying to be like Christ, but rather this is the baptismal life that he's given me. To go back to that question that you said that we don't ask often enough, but maybe we should, what does the baptismal life look like? First and foremost, it looks like Christ's life. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, isn't that's what Paul would have us say in, in Romans chapter six, that when we are baptized, yeah. we are connected to everything that Christ has done. And so the the imitation that happens in our, our lives as Christians isn't simply about what we do, how hard I'm trying. But this is the gift that has been given to me in holy baptism that now plays itself out for the rest of my days. I mean, is, is that is that what we're saying? Well, exactly. Luther said this in his sermon on Lent one which is on Matthew 4, the temptation of Christ. And he makes the point in it that you are now united with Christ. You are now in Christ, and your life looks like Christ's. What does that look like? The baptism where heaven is open to you. And now that heaven is open to you and you are guaranteed eternal life because of Jesus, you now suffer the temptations and persecutions as he did under the devil. This is your life. And if people could just get that, I said this in my sermon uh, yesterday. I said, if people could just understand their own wretchedness, you wouldn't be so quick to point out other people's wretchedness. I said, if you're fat and weigh 600 pounds, you're not too busy telling the 605-pound person they're fat as well. You're just trying to breathe. And that's the reality, is your life is Christ's life. And his life is a life of burden-bearing, of work for the neighbor. Your eternal life is guaranteed in Jesus. Will you fail at loving your neighbor? Yes, and that's why forgiveness is there for you. Not as an entitlement uh, or uh, an encouragement to go sin some more, but rather as the assurance that, guess what? You messed up, but heaven's still open for you because Christ is the one that opened it. You didn't open it. He did. And he doesn't go back on his promises. When you are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So, it's fun stuff. Yes, it is. As as Paul then continues, the Thessalonians are imitators of these churches, having suffered the same things from their own countrymen as they, that is, the churches did from the Jews. And then he, he, he really, the tone changes at the end of verse 14 <laughs> into 15, just to put it bluntly. Right? It, it's just different, it seems. Why? I mean, what's, what's Paul doing as he, he starts then talking about how the Jews persecuted? He says they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets drove us out. I mean, he's, he starts, he really changes tone. What's going on here in Paul's thinking and writing to the Thessalonians here, Pastor Hall? I think maybe he just went up and had a drink or something. I No, I'm kidding. Um, came back angry. No, it, it's the reality of what is he painting here in verses 15 and 16 is this word of God that was given to you, even these people weren't able to stop it. And they tried all they could. They even killed God, and they couldn't stop it. They put God on the cross, and it didn't stop. And when he rose from the dead, they tried killing every single person that preached it, and it didn't stop. And it's still not going to end. They couldn't stop it. Guess what? Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing can stop the word of God being proclaimed, being preached. Remember Jesus? Oh, no, not. Yes. uh, No. St. John the Baptist, you know, even from these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. So and Jesus says it again, even if my disciples are silent, these stones will cry out. And we say, well, that's the Gentiles. And yes, that's what it is. Even if these people stop, God's going to raise them up here. Nothing can stop it. And that's an encouraging word for the church today, that no matter what persecutions may come to us, 
no matter what burdens may come, no matter the 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 strife in the church, because that's what really stands us, right? We we don't get too upset if it's persecution on the outside, because we can kind of band together. But it's when we're, we're fighting each other on the inside of the church. That's where the real heartache is. But even in the midst of the weeds trying to choke out the wheat, God's word is still at work. It doesn't end because God is the one doing it. Man can try all he wants to end it, but <laughs> it, it won't. So, I mean, what Paul is doing in terms of his overall goal, he's encouraging, ultimately, the Thessalonians with these words, and he's putting them in that same line of the Lord Jesus and the prophets there in verse 15. Look what they did to Jesus. Look what they did to prophets. Look what they did to us, the, the apostles. Now look what they did to you. You're mm-hmm. in that that same line, like you brought up earlier, the the last of Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are you when you are persecuted, that they find themselves in that same line. And I, I really appreciate the way that Paul here puts Jesus at the head of that line. It, it may strike strike us a little bit strange that who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, well, they, they killed the prophets first. But <laughs> Jesus is actually standing at the head of all that, as the head of the church, and then the prophets, the apostles, and, and all Christians now follow in his train. Which which hymn is that, that we follow in his train? I, I can't think of it right oh, now. But, but, but all of that, the, the Thessalonians are safely in that company where the Word of God has been at work. And even, even this great persecution that has been going on for all time and has been ever since Cain killed Abel, right? This persecution that's been happening then, since then and will continue until our Lord Jesus comes— not even that is going to to stop the word of God, and it is a it is a very violent persecution, isn't it, Pastor Hall? I mean, the way oh, Paul yeah. describes it is is quite telling. They they oppose all mankind. They're trying to prevent us from speaking the Gentiles because they don't want anybody to be saved. The, no. the hatred of the world is just awful. It's the Son of God goes forth to war, isn't it? Isn't that the hymn? I think you're Paul, right. I think it is. Yeah. But even look at that. That's the hymn we sing for the Feast of St. Stephen, isn't it? I believe the hymn we sing for that feast. And look at even Christmas, you know, the 12 days of Christmas. Who are you celebrating in this life? Those first three days after Christmas is the martyrdom of the holy innocents, the martyrdom of St. Stephen, and the life of St. John, the apostle. And you look at these three, and these are persecuted lives. This is what the Christian life is. You have the joy of Christmas, and, um, and then we kind of forget, right? But then it's like, well, this is now the context of the world he came into. <laughs> you know, it, it is, is death, is hatred. The world hates the faith. And I, I've said this many times in church, why aren't we that persecuted here in America? Is it because the world is okay now, or is it because we've ceased to be that voice crying out in the wilderness? We've befriended the world too much. So the world sees us as a friend that is kind of crazy. We're like the crazy friend in the corner. You know, we're over there, we're with the group, but we're kind of the, the crazy one. You know, that's who we are now, but we're not the enemy. We're not the outcast. We're not the ones that are hated. You know, we're still at the lunch table with them. We're kind of like the ugly friend that's left around so they can point and go, well, at least you're not like him, you know? Mm. Uh, But the reality is when you do preach against the world, then you you will not be loved by the world. The world will want you to be brought to an end, just as it ended Christ, the prophets, the martyrs. I mean, look at even uh, the time of Luther. If Luther had set one foot out of electoral Saxony, he would have been toast, literally, because they would have burned him. Mm. So... Hmm. So bad I mean, joke, I well, no, that's, that's all right, Pastor Hall. I'm, I I enjoy a good bad joke. Um, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> why, that's I mean that's a, that's an interesting question con, question to consider. Why aren't we persecuted more? And again, we're not seeking after the cross. We're not no. going to go out and choose the cross. But the cross will come when when we preach. And, and we should be more than just John the Baptist, who you think is crazy because he wears weird clothes and eats weird stuff. That's not what got John the Baptist beheaded. What got John no. the Baptist beheaded was his preaching against the world. 
And so perhaps there is opportunity here in this text and in, in these Advent texts as we're, we're talking here during the Advent season for, for reflection as to how, how are we preaching the Word of God rather than the Word of men? Are we an opportunity to reflect upon what we've been talking about with those, those two commandments, what is being preached, what is being heard? And, and if the cross is missing, to ask why is not a bad question, not that we would seek after it, but that we would we would also not be afraid of imitating these churches of God in Christ Jesus who have received that persecution and and that we would expect the same well we, we really shouldn't be surprised if it comes I don't know mm. pastor Hull, how do, how do you answer some of those questions well I answer it very <laughs> I'm always very blunt which is fun but I mix it in with goofiness and a lavender coat so it evens out um when we look at why are we not persecuted, it's not saying, okay, I wish everyone's head was chopped off, but I answer simply, well, we, we now say divorce is okay. You go back a while ago and it wasn't, and now it's okay. Um, it's not a sin that needs to be forgiven, but rather, I guarantee half of almost every congregation are divorcees. Um, and that's just one example of something that we would say is sinful, but now is not. Or at least we wouldn't say it's not sinful, but we'd say it's, it's a justifiable thing. When the world comes and says, preach a certain way, we do it. Or even take this. This is a beautiful example. I guarantee more Christians in the Missouri Center were upset that Chick-fil-A isn't funding certain Christian organizations anymore. But they're not as upset that their children that are being confirmed don't have any earthly idea what the Ninth Commandment is. And it shows, what are we getting upset about? And it's things of the world. We're concerned with things of the world. I said it in my sermon on Sunday. I said, if Donald Trump gets impeached, I really don't care. If Bernie Sanders gets elected president, I don't care. Not that I'm a socialist who hates Donald Trump. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I'm not going to spend every moment I'm awake watching Fox News or MSNBC or whatever focused on this. Instead, my time is spent like it is in Psalm 1, meditating on God's Word day and night. Because when you do that and you just preach what God's unconditional Word is of both law and gospel, you will have those that love it who repent, and who seek forgiveness. And you will have those that sharpen the sword and try to chop your head off. And that's the reality. And that sword comes in different forms. It could be physical persecution, mental persecution. You see a lot of pastors nowadays committing suicide because they just can't handle um, the hatred they have to deal with. So that's how I've answered it, at least. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That this is again a text that invites us to to examine our lives, to repent, and to turn to Christ. And so, Pastor Hall, with just under four minutes left here on the morning, as we we think about this text, if there are any points that we didn't bring out today that you want to talk about, please feel free to do so, or give us the goods. R- remind us, and in, because in, we've talked about some hard stuff, give us the goods yeah. and and help us to to see. Christ and his forgiveness within this text that we've got from 1 Thessalonians 2? I would say, and it's weird to say, maybe that last little verse is the most comforting, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Um, You and I are no different than those who would prevent the word of God being spoken. We are the reason Christ went to the cross. We are the reason he was put there. Our sin our fallenness, our failure, our mistakes sent him to Calvary's throne. And on that cursed tree, Jesus didn't say, this isn't fair. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he cried out, it has been and will always be finished. On the cross, Christ assumed the entirety of our sin so that we may receive the entirety of his righteousness, his love, 
his life, his forgiveness. The wrath of God has come upon us at last in Christ on the cross. That now we don't receive that wrath. We receive mercy. We receive grace. We are forgiven. We are loved. And we are now destined for heaven. No matter what comes our way in this life, Christ has died for us. He has risen for us. And we have life with him forever. That's the blessed assurance we have to go through the strife of this life to his joys immortal. Pastor Chris Hull is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us this morning with 1 Thessalonians 2, <clears throat> verses 13 through 16. Pastor Hull, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. It was not the word of men that was preached to the Thessalonians. It was not the word of men that they believed. It was the word of God. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached there. That's what was at work in the Thessalonians. That word was at work to bring them to faith, a faith that remained unshaken, even when they received the same persecution and suffering that the churches in Judea had received. The Thessalonians imitated that suffering gladly, knowing that nothing could stop God's word from doing his work. Not even the worst of persecution that the world could throw at the Thessalonians would stop the word of God from being at work, from carrying the Thessalonians, the Christians there, from death into eternal life. And the same is true for you and for me today. Nothing that the world can throw at us, no hatred, no persecution, not even death, can stop God's word from doing his work among us, from bringing us to faith, to keeping us in faith, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken the wrath of God that we deserved all upon himself, so that we would have his righteousness now and always. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.